My name is Steve. I'm glad to be here with you again this morning. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time this week, we're very glad that you're here and you're catching us in the middle of a series that we're doing in the Gospel of Luke. And we're continuing that today by looking at an incredible story. It's a story of a sick woman, a dead girl, and an unclean Savior. I'm going to read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the Gospel reading from Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman who was, was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered this morning um, distracted. And we are distracted in different directions. Some of us are here overjoyed and overwhelmed with new life. Others of us here feel broken and beaten down. Some of us feel unnoticed and invisible, to you especially. I ask that this morning as we look into your word, as we peer into the mystery of your love, that you would silence all of these foreign thoughts, that we would no longer be distracted, but that we would be, become overwhelmed by your Spirit, overwhelmed with your love, as we hear you calling us with the voice of a shepherd. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this story is one of my favorites, and if you have a really good memory, you'll know that I've actually preached on this story before here, uh, just a little over a year ago. Uh, which worked out great. Brian and I uh, were off doing some regional church work this week, 
so I was a little busier than usual. So um, if you remember everything I said, congratulations. You can just sit back and relax a little bit, but I doubt there are very many of us that have that kind of memory. Um, but it's been fun for me to relook at this story and relook at, at my own th- thinking and, and kind of the ways that I was processing through what's happening here. And I'm excited to talk with you about it again. And the story has a lot of dramatic tension. And I think what it's, what it's really trying to do, what Luke is trying to give us, is a picture of life as it is. He's giving us a picture of how faith works in the real world. And so we're going to look at this story by taking three passes at it. First, we're going to see life as it is, then faith in the real world, and then we'll look at love and consequences. First, life as it is. Luke opens up our story with the backdrop of a crowd of people that are eager to see Jesus. They're eager to see what he's going to do next because he's just manifested two major miracles. And they're falling in love with the spectacle of who Jesus is. He does these big, wonderful things, and they love it, and they just keep watching, keep hoping, keep waiting for him to do the next big thing. But in the midst of this kind of joyous energy, the mood immediately darkens as Jairus comes kneeling before Jesus, begging him to heal his daughter who is about to die. And Luke is including some details here for us in this opening scene that raise the stakes right out of the gate. Jairus is not just a member of the crowd. He's not just a someone who happens by who really needs help. Jairus is an important man. He's the leader of a synagogue. And so typically, he was the guy who was in charge of all of the teaching, all of the reading of God's word that would take place in the local religious setting. And so in Israel's culture, this guy has a pretty high rank. He's pretty well known. He's pretty well respected. And yet here he is clearly undone by his situation because this respected button-down religious man kneels before a renegade rabbi. This Jesus, who has some popularity with the crowd still at this time in his ministry, is still looked at very suspect by the religious elite. And yet here is Jairus kneeling before him because he's become overcome with the suffering that he's facing. His daughter, his only daughter, is dying. And Luke mentions for us that she is 12 years old. And so for us, we look at that and we think how unbelievably sad. This is just a child, a small child getting ready to die. And yet in in that culture, it was even more than that. In a sense, Luke is saying, here's a girl who's about ready to go off to college. This is when a young girl was becoming a young woman. She's entering maturity. She's entering marital age. She is poised to take her place as a woman in the community. And yet all of that is about to be snatched away from her. Death, the familiar alien, is attempting to claim another young life. Woody Allen once said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. I think all of us have had these moments when, when we realize, whether it's through the death of a loved one or perhaps a car accident or a close call or a surgery that comes out of nowhere, when we, we really start to realize that all of the things that we have worked for, all of the things that we have spent our lives doing and counted as important, 
just wash away completely in the face of death. All of our working, all of our striving, all of our status cannot hold death back from us. Jairus is realizing that his social status is powerless in the face of death, and so he's desperate. He's pleading with this miracle-working rabbi, hoping against hope that his daughter can be healed before death claims her. Jairus is in need of a hero, and he's in need of a hero in a hurry. But Luke, who just keeps building the tension throughout this narrative, tells us that the crowd is so thick around Jesus that as he's trying to make his way to this man's house, the crowd begins to crush him. And that word is going to become important for us in a moment. But then, in the midst of this crushing crowd, emerges a woman, a nameless woman, stealing up behind Jesus. And this is a woman who is familiar with suffering. This is an untouchable woman. For 12 years, she has suffered from a discharge of blood. And this is a chronic illness that is clearly not immediately life-threatening, as she's been living with it for over a decade. However, it was completely socially debilitating. And in one of the parallel accounts in Mark's gospel to this story, we read that this woman spent every penny she had seeking a medical cure, and no one could cure her. It's clear that she has become financially destitute. She is without recourse in her culture. And in the religious culture of Israel, this woman is considered ritually unclean. She's untouchable. She's an outcast. Though her medical condition is not transmittable physically, her uncleanness, her ritual impurity is highly, highly contagious. One touch, one brief touch is all it would take for this woman to make anyone else in her society unclean. If this woman is married, her condition would no doubt have left her childless. And in that culture, that would be uh, absolutely dismaying. She would have no power, no status within the community. Culturally, it would have been a huge blow. And, and if she is married, think about it. Her, her own husband cannot even touch her without becoming unclean. Odds are she's not married, which means that no man would give her a second glance. No man is going to look at a woman like this and think, yeah, I could marry her. For 12 years, her uncleanness has precluded her from social engagement. It's precluded her from temple worship, from being with the community of God's people. And so in a very real sense, her uncleanness, her disease has precluded her from God's presence itself. Can you begin to imagine the emotional pain that takes place after 12 years of no human contact? 12 years. 12 years ago, we were all rejoicing that Y2K didn't happen. That was 12 years ago. That feels like a complete other lifetime. And for 12 years, this woman has been untouchable, she's been invisible. Those of you that enjoy coming to worship week by week, imagine 624 weeks of being excluded from walking through those doors. Imagine going 4,380 days without physical touch, not a handshake, no one brushing your hair out of your face, no one putting their arm around you when you're crying. 
This woman is an outcast in every sense of the word, and this is her life. This is life as it is. Do you see the tension that Luke is building for us with these two characters? For Jairus, 12 years has not been nearly long enough. It has flown by. 12 years ago, his daughter was born. He and his wife were celebrating the new life that came into their family. And all those little moments of joy came and went far too fast. But for this nameless woman, 12 years has been an eternity. She doesn't even remember life back as it was. All she has is a memory of no human contact, no joy. For every day that Jairus has enjoyed the life of his daughter, this woman has been invisible, spending her hours in lonely solitude. As we're going to see more in a moment, Jesus' economy does not relegate people based on their status, based on how society values them. In fact, he's not even a first-come, first-serve kind of guy because Jairus was there first. And he has a sort of timely request. It's very time-sensitive. His daughter is very sick. If Jesus can get there in time, perhaps he can heal her. And yet here's this woman, this nameless, invisible, unimportant woman. Couldn't she have waited? Couldn't she have caught Jesus on his return trip? And in the time that's eaten up for Jesus to interact with this invisible outcast, Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, the man who would no doubt have been enforcing the purity laws that preclude this woman from God's people is told that his daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. It's too late. We didn't make it in time. I'd like us to circle back now and look at this story again and look at the importance of faith. And we're going to see how each of these characters that Luke sets before us express faith in different ways. And really, I think what we're going to see is that the faith that Luke presents us with, and, and it's, it's, it's a faith that he wants us to have eventually, is not a pie-in-the-sky sort of faith. It's a faith that is very much equipped to deal with the real world, to deal with life as it is. And so last week, if you were here with us, you'll remember that Brian uh, talked to us about the parable of the soils. And that's the story that, that Luke puts right before this narrative. And it's almost as if we're going to watch a, a school play, right? And before the characters come out and start enacting the play, maybe there's a parable or a proverb that's read. That's sort of like what Jesus did in our text from last week. And now, in, in real human life, that parable of the soils is being played out for us in these characters. So just as a recap from last week, many of you will remember, Jesus says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he's scattering the seed to be planted, some of it falls on the path. It's trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some seed fell on rocky soil. And when it came up, the plants withered because there was no root. There was no root structure, so the moisture was eaten up. Other seed fell among thorns. And as it grew up among the thorns, the thorns choked out the life of those plants. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And if you remember from that parable, as he ends telling the crowd this parable, the disciples are like, what? what are, you, are we taking a, an agriculture class? What are you talking about? 
And Jesus responds by telling them, as we saw last week, that the seed represents God's word and the, the different soils are different human hearts. And it's not different human beings, but it can be all of us on different days, different hours, different reactions to the word of God. There are some that hear the word, but before faith can come and take root, it's snatched away. There are others who joyfully receive the word of the gospel, but under testing it's shown that they don't have a root. There is no moisture getting down to help the plant grow. Others believe and their faith gets choked out by life's worries, and still others remain rooted in the word of the gospel. So the the first character that we're going to deal with as we think about these different types of soils and how they're being played out is the character of the crowd, which literarily is functioning for us as a single character. In the beginning of this story, you'll remember that the crowd welcomes Jesus. They're very excited to see him. They expect him. Jesus has been traveling from village to village, healing people, speaking in parables, and preaching the good news of the gospel to the poor. And up until this point in Luke's gospel, for the most part, the crowd is very, very welcoming of who Jesus is. They're very excited about what they think he's doing in their midst. But this account right here is the turning point for the crowds. As Jesus enters Jairus' house, the mourners have already arrived to weep over the death of this 12-year-old girl. And so when Jesus tells them euphemistically that she's asleep, hinting at the power of resurrection, the crowd begins to mock him. And from this point on in Luke's gospel, the crowds begin to disperse until eventually they turn on Jesus completely. And their laughter in this narrative becomes a mocking, angry cry, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd is in danger of being the first soil, the soil along the path that has been so hardened that even when they hear the word, when the word is right among them, they can't see him. They can't hear it. Now with Jairus, his faith is shown clearly in the beginning of this story by the simple fact that he comes to Jesus. He comes and kneels before him. He, a religious leader, is bowing to this outside renegade. At the beginning of the story, Jairus has faith in the face of hope. But toward the end of the story, When Jairus learns that his daughter has already died, Jesus asks Jairus to have faith in the face of despair. Jairus is in danger of being the second soil, the one whose faith is robbed in the time of testing. Before, Jesus could have healed his daughter, but now she's dead. What could he possibly do for her? He's in danger of his faith being sucked away with the life of his daughter, and yet Jesus tells him, Do not fear, just believe. With the nameless woman, it's a bit harder to tell at first. It's clear that she is full of fear. Luke tells us that she trembles in the crowd. It was most likely her fear that caused her to reach up behind Jesus and touch his cloak rather than actually come to him face to face and ask him for healing. Of course, her fear is understandable. Her life has been a series of disappointments. It's been filled with rejection and constant embarrassment. And and as she's here in this one moment in human history where God is enfleshed before her, it's her one shot at a normal life, her one shot at healing. And yet Jesus is busy 
with a powerful, important man. And she's just a nobody. And so her fear begins to set in that she has no right being there, no right uh, distracting Jesus from his task. How embarrassing would it have been to come up in front of that entire crowd, in front of the religious elite, and ask Jesus for healing, declaring herself to be in perpetual uncleanness? In the beginning, her faith is timid. It's fearful. It's a smoldering wick that is about to go out completely, and yet it still retains a little bit of life. It still retains a little bit of boldness because she reaches out for Jesus in spite of her fear. And then she's healed immediately, finally, fully. But though she is healed, she is still fearful. Consider the strange questions of Jesus. Who touched me? In the midst of a crushing crushing crowd, Jesus says, who just touched me? And everyone denies it. Luke lets us know that everyone denies it, including this woman who very intentionally touched him. The woman was still filled with fear because she had had the audacity to touch this rabbi, making him unclean by her own volition. Of course, Peter, who doesn't really, as usual, not really have a clue as what's really going on, says, are you serious? How, I mean, everyone's touching you. Everyone's bumping into everybody. What do you mean who touched you? Jesus responds, someone touched me, I know, because I know power has gone out for me. And in, in this, Jesus is not suggesting that he just has this magical force of electricity that just jolts, you know, when he can't control it and he doesn't know what's going on. No, what he's doing, what he's telling us, what he's telling that woman is, I know. I know what happened. And he's beckoning her to come forward, to come forward in the fullness of faith and declare herself as one who was unclean and has now been healed. He is beckoning this woman who has been invisible to everyone around her for 12 years to step in to the light, to be seen finally. You see, the very word that Luke uses to describe this crowd as crushing and choking is the same word that he used to describe the weeds in the parable of the soil, the weeds that would try to choke out the life of faith. And so what Jesus is doing when he calls this woman forward is he's looking her in the eye and he's whispering to her, don't let the weeds of this crowd, don't let the fear of embarrassment or rejection, don't let your own invisibility keep you from coming into the light. Don't let it choke out your faith. You're not invisible to me. And so the woman comes forward, still trembling, still filled with fear, but in faith, she boldly proclaims everything. Her uncleanness, her audacity to intentionally pass her uncleanness by touching Jesus, and then her immediate healing. Friends, as I've been thinking about this story and who I am and who, who I wish I was. I've been thinking about, what if it was me? Not, not that I have the power of healing or anything like that, but what if someone who was important was coming to me asking for help, and then all of a sudden I get interrupted by this invisible, dirty, emotionally broken woman? How would I react when she tells me that she did it on purpose, that she interrupted me on purpose? Jesus could have rebuked her 
for distracting him from going to this man's house and healing his daughter. And Luke makes no mistake. He he tells us in front of this woman, you wasted the time that it took, and so she died. That's the implication, right? That we're told that the daughter dies when Jesus is on his way, and it's because this woman interrupted him. He could have rebuked her. He could have rebuked her even more harshly for making him unclean. At this point, even if Jesus could make it to this girl, he is now ritually unclean. According to the laws of Israel, he has to go away by himself for seven days and then get cleaned by, declared clean by a priest. Jesus could have just brushed her off and said, okay, patient, you're cured. Thanks for coming. I've got work to do. But instead, he tells a woman who has never been named, who has never been talked to, never been looked at, never been touched, he says, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. In one word, Jesus reveals to us this woman did not simply need a medical cure. She didn't need a doctor. She needed to be seen. She needed an embrace. She needed a father. She needed to be named daughter. And though her faith was timid and weak, though she entered our story nameless and unclean, she departs healed and cleansed as a daughter of God. What a testimony to Jairus. As this woman departs clean and claimed, his servant approaches, bringing him the news, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. And yet this teacher, who takes such care and tenderness with this woman, says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. This is faith in the real world. Suffering is still all around, and yet faith continues to grow strong. Now I'd like us to look at love and consequences. What is it that that Jesus is doing in this story? And how does our understanding of his mission shape our response to it and to him? As I said earlier, for this woman to touch Jesus, it's very audacious. In fact, it was unlawful. Her uncleanness was transferable, not in the sense of guilt, but in the sense of ritual and societal and religious involvement. For her to intentionally touch someone and transfer her uncleanness would have been unconscionable. It's a very, very big deal. And yet, as I said, Jesus does not reprimand her for this. Rather, he allows her uncleanness to come upon himself. He heals her and gives her the status of daughter by taking on her uncleanness. And then at the end of the story, we see an even stranger thing. Another way for a member of Israel to become unclean was to have physical contact with a dead person. As Jesus enters the house of Jairus, he walks right up to the body of the dead girl, and the first thing he does is take her by the hand. And then, what does he say? He confers upon her the same status that he gave to the nameless woman. Child, daughter, my child, get up. What's happening here? If Jesus has the power to raise the dead, why does he need to touch them? Especially 
if it would make him unclean. For that matter, if Jesus has the power to heal and to raise the dead, why does he have to enter the room in the first place? Why is he in the midst of a crowd? Why even enter the world? What sort of a savior, if he has the power to save, would actually enter into the mess of everything else? I think the, the question that has plagued and harangued the faith of many people throughout time, and many of us in this room, is why does a good and powerful God actually allow suffering to continue to happen? If you believe that he's good and you believe that he's powerful, how do you reconcile that with the world as it is? Why doesn't he just do away with all of it? In Lament for a Son, Nicholas Wolterstorff cries out these very same questions to God after he buries his 25-year-old son. He says, How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. If you have not abandoned us, Explain yourself. We strain to hear. Instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God, and a new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? What does this mean for life that God suffers? I'm only beginning to learn. Friends, Jesus didn't enter this world to walk around pointing out all of our mistakes and offer us some tips on how to live better, how to do better next time, how to get ourselves out of our own mess, our own suffering. No, Jesus walks up to each one of us And he reaches out and he says, I know. I know all of your uncleanness. I know all of your pain, all of your suffering. Take hold of me and give it over to me. He takes up our pain and bears our suffering. He takes on the weight of our rebellion that crushed him. It crushed him. Not just in the final hours, but throughout his life, it crushed him the pain of his people wandering away from him. And he does it so that we can be reconciled, brought back as children. Some of you here this morning may feel like the untouchable, invisible, suffering woman, unnoticed by everyone around you. Don't let your fear of being seen keep you from Jesus. He sees you well, and he loves you all the more. And his words for you this morning are, my child, your faith will heal you. Have peace. Just believe. But for those of you that that have been healed by Jesus, those of you that would say, I'm a part of his community, I'm a part of his kingdom, Jesus taking on your suffering is not the end of the story. No, you have been brought to this place to learn how to enter suffering, not avoid it. 
the embracing of suffering, the taking on of the pain of others is not incidental to God's kingdom. It is at the very center of his kingdom. It is the defining marker of his mission. Friends, God's work in this world is stamped with suffering. And so if you have been stamped and sealed by his Holy Spirit, then you have been marked out as one who now suffers on behalf of the world. And so in a moment, we invite you to this table to come and eat and drink in the sufferings of Christ so that you will recognize it, so you will start to see the invisible and recognize suffering so that when you move back out into this world, surrounded by invisible, untouchable people, you will see Jesus himself beckoning you, beckoning you to come and let him work through you in the lives of those people. Let's pray together. Jesus, your care and tenderness are overwhelming to us. I don't even think it's possible for us to to mentally hold together the ideas of your unbelievable power, the glory of your divinity, the fact that you reign over all things, and yet you take time to care for small, invisible, broken people like us. I ask this morning that your spirit would impress upon us that truth. As we come to your table, we would be overwhelmed by your love and move out into this world loving others as we have been loved. We ask in your name. Amen.